Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Well, we've been in a series uh, that we're calling Kingdom Time, which is named simply after um, the time of year that we're in uh, on the Christian calendar. This is week six of the series and the final week of this series. Uh, We're still going to be in Kingdom Time until Advent begins, but uh, we're going to kind of move on, do different series and things like that. And in fact, next week, we're going to begin just a two-part series. Uh, I'm not sure what we're going to call it yet. Um, I'm usually way more ahead of the ball than this, but I think we're going to call it Resisting Rage. Um, uh, just a couple weeks kind of exploring the gentle nature of who God is and, and how God has called us kind of to a, a gentleness in the world. Uh, and that is not to say weakness, uh, but that is a gentleness or a posture toward the world that I think is really important and how we can kind of resist the rage that is all around us in our culture. And actually, today is going to be a great bridge into that series. So uh, I encourage you to make it for the next couple of weeks. Uh, but today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to begin with verse 2 and read through verse 10. Uh, I think it'll be up on the screens for you as well. If not, you can uh, click there on your devices, or there should be a Bible maybe somewhere in your neighborhood in the, in the, under the racks, uh, or you can just follow along with me as I read. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, uh, which says this, beginning with verse 2. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such one, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses." But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I will refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's jump right into the deep end and get the obvious question right out of the way, shall we? What in the world is up with the third heaven? (laughs) I know that's what all of you are thinking, and the passage ends with such beauty and all of that, but right at the very beginning, I was caught up into the third heaven, and you're like, no what is going on there? So let's just address this. Um, Now, let's go back to our story about Pastor Michael and Pastor Stephen that we introduced a couple weeks ago, and it's kind of been a thread through this series. Remember, Pastor Michael was faithful and loving, but rather simple and unimpressive. 
Uh, however, the people of his church began to reject his leadership once they learned of Pastor Stephen uh, in, the, in the next town over, who was quite impressive and flashy. Uh, the Apostle Paul was facing a similar situation. Um, he were fancy kind of Christian leaders, uh, those that he actually sarcastically calls in the letter of Second Corinthians super apostles, right? So he's like making fun of them, making caricatures of them. Uh, he says these super apostles, they appear in Corinth, uh, they put Paul down because Paul is poor. Um, history shows us that Paul, while being an excellent writer, theologian, pastor, actually wasn't a very good public speaker. He wasn't a very dynamic speaker. And so these super apostles come into Corinth. They put Paul down. Oh, he's poor. He doesn't speak very well. Look at us. We're flashy. We're impressive. And the whole Corinthian church was like, oh, look at these fancy leaders. And they liked them better. And they rejected Paul. And so 2 Corinthians is actually a letter of Paul defending his ministry. Uh, and saying, hey, you know, I'm not as bad as they, you think I might be. Uh, so, well, apparently the super apostles were doing, uh, were doing this. They had entered into a bit of competition with Paul, and so they were listing the things that made their ministry amazing, uh, things like they were Jewish Bible experts, uh, they had a lot of knowledge about Jesus, and they regularly had spiritual visions. And so spiritual visions became sort of a marker of, oh, look at me, and look how amazing my ministry is, because because I have these kind of spiritual visions all of the time. So in chapter 11 and into the beginning of chapter 12, what Paul does is he says, okay, if you want to compare, that's fine. Uh, here's my list of credentials. And Paul says, uh, you know, you might be familiar, you might be a Jewish Bible expert. I'm a Pharisee. Uh, that means that he would have had the, the, the Jewish Bible memorized. Like he would have been able, he knew it from memory. Um, so he's like, yep, I got you there. I was a Pharisee. I also, and they're like, we know a lot about Jesus. And Paul says, I actually spent time with the resurrected Jesus. Um, so there's that, right? <laughs> so Paul's just kind of putting out there. And then he talks about, and I even know someone who was caught up into this third heaven or what he later calls paradise. And actually, we know that he's actually talking about himself, <laughs> which is really funny. Like, I know somebody, it's actually me, that was caught up into the, into the third heaven, this place called paradise. Uh, and so it's really just, um, it's, well, to us, it seems so strange, so weird, so foreign to talk about in context. It's Paul just kind of saying, hey, if you want to compare, I've got a whole bunch of things that I can compare and actually show that I'm more qualified to speak about and to preach the good news of Jesus. And, by the way, some historical context, the third heaven in the ancient Jewish mind uh, was just sort of like this, the, the highest form of heaven, the highest level of heaven, um, and often referred to as paradise. Now, of course, as modern Christians, we haven't, not all modern Christians have adopted sort of this tiered view of heaven, um, and what we preach here at, at uh, Emmaus is this kind of new creation, the heaven uh, and earth becoming one, heaven coming down, joining with earth, there's this beautiful marriage in the book of Revelation, all of that. Um, but let's not get too caught up in that, but I wanted to address kind of what was going on um, in context. So what's interesting, though, is that right out of this, Paul says, so he's like, okay, Jewish Bible expert, I'm a Pharisee. You know a lot about Jesus. I spent time with the resurrected Jesus. You have spiritual visions. I was taken up into paradise, right? So he's like, I've got you in all those places, in which he goes directly to say, and by the way, there's a thorn 
in my flesh that won't go away. So right after this kind of list of comparison, and Paul is sort of saying like, all right, if you want to play this game, I can definitely beat you, you know? Um, It's like when someone says, I would love to continue this battle of wits, but you're obviously unarmed. Paul is essentially doing that, right? Okay, so some of you will get that at lunch later today, and you'll be like, whoa, that was… Okay, so the point, of course, is to show that spiritual visions or this kind of like accolade of ministry does not elevate someone as being more valuable or having more worth than others. That's exactly why Paul, after sharing his credentials, goes right into saying, I have this thorn in my flesh, It's a way of saying this simply does not elevate anyone above the others. The super apostles might brag of spiritual visions while also hiding or ignoring any of their weaknesses, refusing vulnerability so that they don't appear weak. And Paul, on the other hand, says essentially I've had spiritual visions as well, but I also have this thorn in my flesh that remains after all of these years and all of these prayers. And that is actually in service to what Paul is ultimately going to land on, which is where the kind of passage ends. But but what seems kind of disconnected to us, third heaven, thorn, strength and weakness is actually a coherent thought process that is leading to the big point. Now, we're going to get there. Let's talk a little bit about Paul's thorn in the flesh. The short answer is we don't know. There's no way that we can know. Lots of theologians, historians have speculated. Uh, Some folks have thought this was a physical ailment, like a disease of some kind that… that he just had to have, and it, he just dealt with it and had to manage it. Um, some, others have said it was a mental challenge, maybe depression or significant anxiety. Still others say this was a spiritual thorn. Maybe it was a regular kind of temptation that Paul had to face and gain victory over, and he was praying that the temptation would go away. So whether it's spiritual, whether it was mental, whether it was physical or something else, the short answer is we simply don't know. But I actually don't think that the power is in knowing the specific of what Paul faced. I think the power for you and I is for someone like the Apostle Paul being able to say, I had this thing in my life, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I wanted it to go away, and yet it still is here. And the answer that God gave me, rather than taking it away, is that my grace is sufficient for you. So the power is not knowing, oh, what did Paul face? The power is in knowing that when Paul says, I've got a thorn in my flesh, we all can say, that resonates a little bit. I know what that means. I've got this thing that I kind of have to deal with that just hangs around. I've prayed for it to go away. It won't go away. And yet the answer is God's grace is sufficient for you and I. My prayer often, if, if, um, 
Sometimes when we're in a, a group of people and we ask for prayer requests and it's crickets, right? Have you been in those situations <laughs> where everybody, nobody really wants to share what's going on? Maybe they don't quite feel safe. Maybe there's a, a dynamic in the room that people don't want to open up and really share what's going on. And that's totally fine. But we recognize that in any given situation, if a prayer request is asked for and nothing comes, that isn't because the people in that room aren't facing some stuff because they are, right? So what I will often pray in those situations is, God, would you meet us at the point of our need and demonstrate that your grace is sufficient for each and every one of us? I think that's a pretty good prayer if we don't know some specifics, okay? And so the short answer in terms of like, what is Paul's thorn? We don't know. We don't need to know. That's not where the power is. The power is in we can kind of resonate with the idea of facing some things. Okay, so then this whole conversation, this whole kind of line of thought, are you sticking with me, is, is really comes to a head or comes to a point in uh, the main point in verse 9 where Paul says, again, my grace is sufficient for you for power is made perfect in weakness. Power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul puts an even finer point on it in verse 10 when he says, whenever I'm weak, then I am strong. Make a pop song out of that, right? And have it get a bunch of radio play, right? What, what, what gets a lot of radio play, and there's nothing actually wrong with this, is like some songs about self-empowerment, right? And I think there's actually a place for calling people through the art of music to self-confidence, right? There's a point in that. And so I'm not putting any kind of music down, but if you try to like write a pop song uh, about how power is made perfect in weakness, it's got a little punch to it, uh, but it would be difficult and it probably wouldn't get much radio play. Uh, so, so what is going on here? Well, let me just say right up front that Paul is not advocating that the people of God be weak. He says, power is made perfect in weakness. And if we take that maybe too, too literally or we miss the point of what Paul's saying, we might think that Paul is saying Christians ought to be weak people. And Paul is not saying at all that we ought to be weak. Rather, what he's doing is calling us to a particular kind of strength. And he's actually implicitly comparing two kinds of strength in the context. The first kind of strength comes from our own bravado and is expressed in the veneer of power through the lack of vulnerability. Or the very power or the kind of strength that is on display in the lives of the super apostles, right? The super apostles come in, look at us, we're flashy, we're impressive, we're dynamic, we're the power team. <laughs> 90s Christian camp, nope, nobody, okay. Like, okay, I got one power team, okay, good. Right, so it's like, when they come in, they're flashy, they're impressive, all of this kind of stuff. And Paul is essentially trying to say, this is actually a facade of strength. This is a false strength. It thinks too highly of itself. And it does not demonstrate real and authentic kind of strength. Okay, so I've been coaching softball this summer uh, for second and third grade girls. And I've actually been, I've now coached um, 
at every level between t-ball and middle school. That's a pretty wide thing. So over the course of years uh, coaching, I've, I've coached t-ball all the way up to middle school softball. And, um, over the, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm not an amazing ball player, right? Um, but I, I've got some ball playing in my history, and I feel like I've got... <laughs> Like, that's the, that the weirdest way to say that. Like, I've got some ball playing in my history. So, um, but I, so I'm not an amazing ball player, but I do feel like I have some skills to offer these young athletes that will help them improve and get better. Here's what I've learned in my time as a coach. Um, some athletes are coachable, and some ath- athletes are not. <laughs> In other words, I've had young athletes who refuse to listen to anything I have to say, believing that they already have and possess all the skills necessary to play the game at the highest levels, at second and third grade. Okay, so I've had, I've had athletes where I'm like, hey, like, let's think about throwing the ball this way, right? Let's get into this throwing position. Let's get into this athletic position. And they'll just look at me like, that's not how it's done, right? Um, on the other hand, I have had athletes who, with beautiful humility, are hungry to learn and get better. And what I found is the strongest players on the field are the athletes who are willing to humble themselves and learn rather than the athletes who feel like they have everything figured out or that they know better because they have all the fanciest equipment, (laughs) which is usually how it works, by the way. It's how it worked when I was a kid. It's pretty much how it works today. You come in, you're just like decked out. And it's usually the ones who think they know everything, who can't quite get a hold of how the game is played, right? So the strongest athletes and the best players are the ones who consistently and always believe that there is more to learn. There's a humility to their approach. So, it's not that Paul wants Christians to be weak. It's that Paul wants Christians to model this second kind of strength. Paul's essential argument is that the truest form of strength is a strength that is displayed through humility, vulnerability, generosity, forgiveness, selflessness, For when we take on these qualities, it creates space in our hearts and in our lives for God to be at work in us and then also through us, right? And this is really, really hard because what we tend to think is that the best kind of strength is when we sort of march in with all this, I've got this, no problem, uh, you know, uh, like this sort of confidence. And what I think is kind of the perfect and beautiful balance of this is to have a degree of confidence that comes from a rootedness in my identity in Christ, but has a posture of humility toward the world. Does that make sense? So, so I, it's not that I, because we can go the opposite direction, which is I don't like myself. I don't believe in myself. This is not the weakness or, or the strength that Paul is calling us to. 
Paul is defending his ministry and saying, I have something to offer. I am qualified to go and to share and to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to you, Corinthian church. So there is a confidence that lies within him, but he has also this posture of vulnerability and humility that he's trying to put on display, and it's the very thing that he sees in the life of Christ. The very thing that he sees in the life of Christ. Christ, when faced with, with arrest and violence, did not try to, to straight, like, like body up and defend himself, but says, uh-uh, you will not take me. I will go on my own accord. That is confidence. That is strength. You do not take my life, Jesus says. I lay it down. I lay it down. And so, I'll say it again. Paul is not calling Christians to be weak. He's rather inviting us into this second kind, this more authentic kind of strength that's displayed through things like humility, vulnerability, forgiveness, generosity, and selflessness. For this creates space in our hearts and in our lives for God to be at work in us and through us. The truly strong person knows when they have something to offer and when they need help. And actually, I would say, every one of you have an instinct for this. Every one of you know what true strength looks like when you see it. True strength is the leader who is supposed to be immovable, and yet they approach the platform and share with vulnerability. True strength looks like the one who has little, giving generously to the one who has even less. True strength looks like the patient being humbled by a diagnosis and responding with determination. True strength looks like the Messiah being shamed on the cross and responding with forgiveness. And I would maybe add to Paul's little bit that would, that would say, this is my commentary on what Paul is saying here, and that is, as long as we try to chase the first kind of strength, we'll never know strength at all. As long as we're just chasing the first kind of strength, we might trick some people, we might have moments or seasons where we feel strong or, or all of that, but ultimately, it will remain, true strength will remain out of our grasp. But when we see that true strength comes through the weakness or the apparent weakness of what Paul has said, then we'll possess the very strength of God. There is an ancient story about a skilled sculptor and inventor named Daedalus. Daedalus was so skilled in his work that he was invited to the island of Crete to do work for the king. And while there, he certainly designed and sculpted things, including designing the famous labyrinth. Now, after completing his work, he wanted to leave the island, but because of his talent, the king would not allow him to go. And so, being an inventor, Daedalus put his mind and his creativity to the problem, and he designed a way to fly. 
He made wings out of birds' feathers, attached them to his arms using wax that would then dry to cement the wings to his arms. And he did actually the same for his son, Icarus. The invention worked, and so off they flew toward their home in Greece. However, Icarus was so excited about this new form of travel that he wanted to fly not toward the destination, but up toward the sun. Daedalus did his best to try and convince his son that this was, in fact, a dangerous idea. But Icarus did not listen. He was headstrong, and he kept flying higher and higher toward the sun. And so up he flew, closer and closer. But as you might have guessed, as he got closer to the sun, the heat began to melt the wax that held the feathers. And so the feathers fell off, and down Icarus fell into the sea and was drowned. This ancient story is depicted in many Renaissance-era paintings and comes with a clear message. Don't fly too high, or you might come to an unpleasant end. I think this story captures a little bit of what Paul is saying when he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. May God's grace be sufficient, for God's power is made perfect in my weakness. Church, in a culture that is focused on strength, may we come to know that true strength comes from the weaknesses of humility, vulnerability, forgiveness, and love. For these are the very things displayed in the life of Christ, who is our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let me say a word of prayer together. Gracious God, we give you thanks again for this day for the celebrations that are yet to come and for the time that we have set aside to gather in your, in your place, in your sanctuary, to give our attention to you and to your word. Lord, it's difficult in a culture that really focuses a lot on strength and a particular kind of strength. Uh, it's difficult to hear this, this message about how we are to take on a posture that maybe appears at first as weak, but in the end displays true strength in our lives. And so God, for the times that we have believed maybe false messages about what real strength looks like, would you forgive us? And we also pray, God, that you would help us to lean into the truest forms of strength that there are. May our posture toward one another, may our posture toward the world as the people of God be one of humility, one of vulnerability, one of generosity. And Lord, may our hearts be changed as a result. May our lives and the lives of the people around us be changed. For when we do these things, Lord, we are in fact taking on and demonstrating your very character. So help us to be more Christ-like today, we pray. And we also ask, Lord, that as we gather around your table, that you would meet us here, that, um, 
If there's any correction that needs to take place in our lives or in our hearts, if there's any encouragement that you would have to offer, God, I pray that we would come with hearts ready to receive as we gather around the Lord's table today. So be with us in these moments. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.